you'd like to turn to Judges 10. We're actually going to be looking at Jephthah in Judges 11, but we're going to give a little background in Judges 10. So most everyone here by now, I would think, has a pretty good idea, the background of the book of Judges, what led up to that. You know, Joshua brought Israel into the promised land. God had Joshua do that, and he divided the country up into 12 tribal divisions. And so each tribe, as they went in, was responsible for wiping out or dispossessing the Canaanites or whoever it was that held their land. And if you read the beginning of Judges, you'll see it started out well. Judah started out great, and it progressively got worse to where those last tribes are just kind of letting them live with them and dwell with them. And they didn't do a very good job of dispossessing the land. But what they were supposed to do, it was supposed to be a no-compromise situation. Man, they were supposed to go in there and wipe out every man, woman, and child. And to us, that sounds pretty cruel, doesn't it? It's like even the children, what had they done up to that point? Even though it sounds harsh, why did God ask them to do that? Because he knew that the sin and religion that was embedded there would be like a cancer. And he also said they had 400 years. Their sin had reached its maximum. And we don't know where that is for people. But for sinners, there comes a point where they've maxed out their sin, and God judges them. And that's one thing we learn from that. He said, we're not, I'm not sending them in there yet. Their sin hasn't reached its fullness. But at this point, it had, going into Judges. Now listen, he said it's a no compromise, and you know, just bringing that home, that's the way he wants us to deal with sin in our own lives. If we compromise it, it will compromise us. I mean, that's the lesson to be learned in the book of Judges. And with Israel of old, they compromised with sin, thought they could live with it, and found out it just came back to bite them, and it drug them down, and eventually they lost everything. Eventually, God was very long-suffering with them, but eventually it cost them their country. And so, because they didn't wipe out those inhabitants, they were affected by all the different groups, the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Parasites, the Girgashites, the Hittites. The cellulites, you know, the satellites, how you keep going on, right? It gets, the list is practically endless, right? And what happened, though, is they would learn the religions of these groups that they allowed to live in that land, and it mainly was Baalism. And one of the big features of Baalism is it was a big sexual religion. It was based on that. It was a fertility cult, and, oh, man, that, that's what America is. Americans would have loved to have been there. They would have loved to have learned Baalism. That's practically what we're like. But what's funny is those same groups that they allowed to live with them, God would use to punish them. And that's the way it is with sin. You know, God will use the devil to tempt people to bow down and worship, say, the God of sex and just how pleasant it's going to be and how great it is and all that. And that very thing is what God uses to judge people that give in to that sin and that idolatry. I heard a guy last night, I'll have to agree with him. You know, sexual sin, sexual addiction, it's idolatry. And America is filled with it. But look what's the result of that. You get VD, out of wedlock children, divorce. Or this guy came last night to talk about, and it's prevalent in America. And they deal with a lot of ministers. Sexual addiction. People addicted not to drugs, but to sex. They got this rehab center he came to talk about that's up in Kentucky. It's bondage. Now, we're going to deal with it a little different than they would, not tonight. But that kind of bondage is a spirit. It's slavery. It's the devil. And so you guys 
You want to open that door up, you think just looking one time is no big deal, and one time, but once you make that turn in your heart, you don't know that you're going to turn back, and you don't know that you're not going to be a slave, and you don't know what the end's going to be. Like I heard Henry Blackaby say one time, you're walking down that path, and you first get off that path, and you turn in your heart from walking on with the Lord, and you're not far away. But the more you keep going that way, and God's path's leading this way, guess where you're at in a few years or a few months? You're way far away. And it's not a matter of you're just going to one day, oh, I think I'll get back over there. Uh-uh. That's not the way it works. It's all the grace of God. And he may or may not. He's sovereign with his grace. He may or may not bring a person back that's walked away from him intentionally like that. And that's not even part of my sermon, but it is tonight. It is now. Well, listen, so Judges has this cycle of sin that just keeps going and going and repeating itself, and it gets worse and worse and worse as the book goes on until we end up at the end where it's just utter chaos. And what's the word we all know? That every man did that which was right in his own eyes. There was no king in Israel at the time. And they would sin, and then God would bring on suffering oppression from these enemies and then they would cry out to the Lord and then he would raise up a judge or a savior and that's the way that cycle would go that savior would come the land would have rest for a while and then they would get back into sin and then they would get oppressed and then they would cry out and then he would send another judge and on and on and on it went and this happened seven times through this book up to where we're at in chapter 10 over and over and over and over and over. I don't know if I said it seven times, but that's how many it was. Seven times it just kept repeating itself. Didn't learn from their mistakes. Finally, though, where we're at here in chapter 10, you know what happened in chapter 10? God said, I've had enough of this. You sin and you repent. You go after these other gods and you cry out to me. He finally just says, I've had enough. We don't like to think of God like that. This isn't the happy message that, you know, whatever, but it's the truth is what it is. So look in Judges 10, if you would, beginning in verse 6. And we'll see what I just said. And it said the children of Israel, he just talked about two other judges previously in this chapter, Tola and Jair. It says, though, here again, they'd been delivered after the judge died. It's typical. And verse 6, the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam and Ashtaroth and the gods of Syria and the gods of Zidon and the gods of Moab and the gods of Ammon and the gods of the Philistines and they forsook the Lord and served not him. Verse 7, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the children of Ammon. And that year they vexed and oppressed the children of Israel 18 years all the children of Israel that were on the other side, Jordan, in the land of the Amorites, which is called Gilead. And moreover, the children of Ammon passed over Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was sore distressed. They are in a bad way. Eighteen years this has been going on. Verse 10, and the children of Israel, here's the pattern again. They cried unto the Lord, saying, we have sinned against thee both because we have forsaken our God and also served Balaam. And the Lord said unto the children of Israel, he, he lays it all out, what he's done for them in the past. Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the children of Ammon and from the Philistines? 
The Zidonians also and the Amalekites and the Maonites did oppress you, and you cried unto me, and I was faithful. I delivered you out of their hand. And he says, yet, verse 13, you've done it again. You have forsaken me and served other gods. Wherefore, look at these solemn words, verse 13. He says, I will deliver you no more. He says, go and cry unto the gods which you've chosen. Cry unto those gods. Let them help you. Let them deliver you in the time of your tribulation, he tells them. He says, let those gods you're serving that you think are so much fun and they're supplying all your needs and they're doing all these great things. He said, go look to them. Don't cry to me. I'm through with you, is what he's telling them there. Enough is enough. So Israel, here's what they did. Here was their reaction. And the children of Israel said unto the Lord, we have sinned. You can do whatever you seems good unto you. Deliver us only, we pray you, this day. So they're like, all right. You're, we're not arguing with you, Lord. We're getting everything we deserve. We're just asking you, please deliver us. And they're like, whether you do or not, we're still going to put away these gods, which is what they do in verse 16. And they put away the strange gods from among them and served the Lord. And this is how great a compassion that our Lord has. Even though he told them, I've had enough of you all repenting and getting back. He says, it's still, it grieved his heart. It's his people. He was grieved, it says, for the misery of of Israel at the end of verse 16. There's a guy I knew in prison. His name was Kenny. Kenny told me one time that he'd been serving the Lord and God had left him because of his sin. He got into sin. And he said, I didn't even care. He said, I blasphemed God and whatever else. And he got in all kinds of trouble. Didn't even care. Couldn't count his way back to God. Knew he was in trouble. And then one day, God's favor just broke in on that because he's like, I deserve everything I'm getting. I'm going to try to serve you as best I can, but I don't deserve your mercy anymore. He had no assurance of his salvation. Told me that was the most miserable years of his life. And he's like, I just decided I was going to serve the Lord whether it paid or not. And I didn't deserve his mercy. And he said, all of a sudden, one day, all of a sudden, he had that assurance that Romans 8 witnessed with his spirit that everything was all right with God. And he says, man, did I learn a lesson with that? And I said, man, that is quite a testimony. And he's got a smile. I've known him for quite a few years now. He's got a smile on his face every time I see him. Mr. Kenny. But King Manasseh, he's another one. It says he was the most wicked king. There was no king like him. The most wicked king that ever existed. And God took him from the throne and put him in bondage. And it said, yet. It looked like it was all over for him. I don't see how he would have had any hope. But it said, yet in his punishment that he cried out to the Lord, humbled himself with fasting. And it said, what? God had mercy on that man. The most wicked king said he caused the children of Israel to do sins that were unspeakable. They were worse than all the heathens around them even having the God of Israel and his law. And yet, even though it looked like he was past the point of no return, God had mercy on him. I would say God granted him repentance, but from his side, he cried and he humbled himself greatly. And so let me ask you, does God owe Israel mercy here? Did he owe Kenny, my friend in prison, did he owe him any mercy? Did he owe Manasseh anything? The only thing he owed them in any sense of the word was judgment. That's all he owed Israel. 
but because, like we said, of his great mercy and his heart. And we need to never forget that, the heart of our God and what all he's overlooked, the sins that we've committed all the time, maybe today, that we deserve to be judged for. And God in his mercy is grieved when we cry unto him. Wants to show us mercy. So he raises up a judge. Again, another one. So let's start reading here in Judges 11. It says, Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor, and he was the son of a harlot. And Gilead begat Jephthah. And Gilead's wife bare him sons, and his wife's sons grew up. And they thrust out Jephthah and said unto him, Thou shalt not inherit in our father's house, for thou art the son of a strange woman. And then Jephthah fled from his brethren and dwelt in the land of Tob. And there were gathered vain men to Jephthah and went out with him. And it came to pass in the process of time that the children of Ammon made war against Israel. Let's hit the pause button right there. So we are in verse 4. If you could put that first one up there. One thing I want to show, I just probably should have showed this earlier, but it's all right. And all of you might have trouble reading in the back, but... There is this little pointer of mine. There's the Dead Sea, the Jordan River, and the Sea of Galilee. This is not going to make anybody any more spiritual, but it'll just help you to know. You know, when I used to read Judges, you know, you get this image in your mind that those judges are in one place and all over the land. And it shows here, if you see these different names, these judges are all over the land of Israel. They weren't localized into any one place. So, for instance, Jephthah, who we have right here, there's the Jordan River. He's over on the east side of the Jordan River in that territory, and that's where he judged from. And Samson was over here. What was Samson's big problem? The Philistines, and they're right there. So you don't read about him dealing with Ammon or Moab. He's dealing with the Philistines. And Gideon, who's another famous judge that's up north there, he dealt with the Midianites. So they would have these localized problems where these judges are dealing with things, even though it talks about they oppressed Israel. But the writer is looking at Israel as a whole, even though the judges are kind of localized. And Gideon got all his help from the tribes that were up north. You don't read about Judah or Benjamin or the tribes, uh, Manasseh over here, coming up to help Gideon. And that's kind of the way it was. These judges were more localized. So maybe that will help you out when you read the book. And then we'll move on here to the next one in a minute. But we're in verse 4, it says, It came in the process of time. And you can see where Ammon is. Ammon is over here. Ammon's over here to the east. And this is the area we're talking about right in here that they're contending for. The process of time that the children of Ammon made war against Israel. And it was so that when the children of Ammon made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to fetch Jephthah out of the land of Tob. And they said unto Jephthah, Come and be our captain, that we may fight with the children of Ammon. And Jephthah said unto the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and expel me out of my father's house? And why are you come unto me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said unto Jephthah, Therefore we turn again to thee now, that thou mayest go with us and fight against the children of Ammon, and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And Jephthah said unto the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight against the children of Ammon, and the Lord deliver them before me, shall I be your head? And the elders of Gilead said unto Jephthah, The Lord be witness between us, if we do not do so according to thy words. And then Jephthah went out with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and captain over them. And Jephthah uttered all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. 
And Jephthah sent messengers unto the king of the children of Ammon, saying, What hast thou to do with me, that thou art come up against me to fight in my land? He's like, why are you wanting to fight us? What's your issue with us? And the king of the children of Ammon answered unto the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel took away my land when they came up out of Egypt from Arnon even unto Jabbok and unto Jordan. Now therefore restore those lands again peaceably. And Jephthah sent messengers again unto the king of the children of Ammon, and said unto him, Thus saith Jephthah, Israel took not away the land of Moab, nor the land of the children of Ammon. So if you could put the next one up. Here's what's going on is there is where Ammon is. This is where Tob is. And this is the area of land that's being disputed. Actually, it's all of this right in there. And the king of Ammon is saying, hey, he just wants the Israelites to just give him back this land. He's saying, that's our land. You all took it, and it wasn't yours to take, all of this land up here. And so they're asking Jephthah to come down here, and this is where this fight's going to take place, here and all along this coast of Ammon that's coming up. And so what we have here is Jephthah is going to give them a little bit of a history lesson. Because he's going to say, you all are saying that's your land, and I'm telling you, it's not your land. God gave us that land. You got your history all wrong. We got to get the facts straight here, Mr. King of Ammon, is what he tells him. So what he does is he goes through verses 14 to 20. He shows how the, the route that the children of Israel took and how God brought them to where they possessed this land that he's saying they should just give over to him, like he's got some kind of right to it. And so let's read verses 14 to 20. So here's his answer. He's saying, you got that land. And he goes, I want you to restore it to me peaceably, verse 13, the king of Ammon. And Jephthah answers him, sent messengers again unto the king of the children of Ammon. And he said unto him, well, thus saith Jephthah, Israel took not away the land of Moab, nor the land of the children of Ammon. Get your facts straight, king. And he goes on, but when Israel came out of Egypt and walked through the wilderness unto the Red Sea and came to Kadesh, then Israel sent messengers unto the king of Edom, saying, Let me, I pray thee, pass through thy land. But the king of Edom would not hearken thereto. And in like manner they sent unto the king of Moab, but he would not consent. And Israel abode in Kadesh. And then they went along through the wilderness and compassed the land of Edom and the land of Moab and came by the east side of the land of Moab and pitched on the other side of Arnon, but came not within the border of Moab, for Arnon was the border of Moab. And Israel sent messengers unto Sihon, king of the Amorites, the king of Heshbon. And Israel said unto him, Let us pass, we pray thee, through thy land into my place. But Sihon trusted not Israel to pass through his coast. But Sihon gathered all his people together and pitched in Jahaz and fought against Israel. That's a lot of geography there. And this is why I'm doing this map thing. That's just a lot of geography to follow. This is what we basically just read, if this will help you out. If you can see that red line, I know it's probably hard in the back, but this is the probable route of the children of Israel. They come to Edom. They're not allowed to pass through there. And so they journey on down, and they go around both Edom and Moab. They respected the fact those countries said, we don't want you passing through. And they're like, okay, we won't. And so they come up here to this point right here. And this is where Sihon is going to meet them, if you go to the next picture. And that's what we have here. Here's Ammon. There's the Dead Sea. 
and Israel comes in and Sihon fights against them. And this is where all this land is taken from. It says Og and Sihon, right in here. They defeated these armies that came against them. They left Ammon alone, and they left the countries to the south alone. But God gave them victory in this battle. And that's how they possessed that land. And that's what he's telling them. You got your history wrong. You didn't even own that land, king of Ammon. So this is what's taking place. They're, they're fighting over this territory right in here that God had given them. And a little further south even. So that's what we just read there through verse 20. And look what it says in verse 21. He's telling them, hey, look. I'm giving you an argument from history, a little history lesson here. And the first thing he says is that Yahweh, our God, he drove out the Amorites, verse 23. So now the Lord God of Israel dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel, and shouldest thou possess it? So it was the Amorites that lived in that land that Ammon is saying they should give back to him. Those are the people, Sihon, king of the Amorites, is who they defeated. Verse 21, the Lord God of Israel delivered Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they smote them. So Israel possessed all the land of the Amorites and the inhabitants of that country. And they possessed all the coasts of the Amorites from Arnon even unto Jabbok, and from the wilderness even unto Jordan. So now the Lord God of Israel has dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel, and should you possess it? He's saying, historically, Israel possessed the land of the Amorites. We just read that, and he's like, are you calling that your land? That wasn't ever your land that you're saying we should give back to you. That's his history lesson argument. And then he gives a lesson of theology to the king. He gives him an argument from theology. Because he says this, our God, not us, we didn't decide to go in there, but it clearly says in the Bible that our God dispossessed those people. God was the one that gave Israel that land of the king of the Amorites. They didn't take it. And he goes on to say, if you'll look in verse 23, he says, Now the God of Israel has dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel, and shouldest you possess it? And he goes on to say in verse 24, You ought to be happy with what your God gave you. That's what he tells in verse 24. He says, Wilt thou not possess that which Chemosh thy God gives thee to possess? So whomsoever the Lord our God shall drive out from before us, them we will possess. And are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever strike against Israel, or did he ever fight against them? While Israel dwelt in Hezbon and her towns, and in Er and her towns, and in all the cities that be along the coast of Arnon, 300 years? His point there was, we've held that land. Israel had possessed that land for 300 years. And he's like, you never argue about it before. You never brought it up before that that was your land. You waited 300 years to protest. Where you been? He's like, no, we're not giving it to you. And he goes on to say in verse 27, Wherefore, I have not sinned against you, but you do me wrong to war against me. He says, the Lord, let him be the judge between me and you this day, the children of Israel and the children of Ammon. And so he's presented a really good case. If you could follow that, <laughs> a little complicated, I don't know, but I mean, I can follow it, but <laughs> he's presented a good case historically and theologically. We didn't steal any land from you, Mr. King of Ammon. That was the Amorites land. You had no 
claim on that land whatsoever. And not only that, our God gave us that land. Your God, you say, Chemosh gave you your land. Just be happy with that, with what he gave you. You don't have any right. And not only that, you've waited 300 years to make an argument about it. It's a little late. That's in essence what he's telling him. But he didn't want to listen to it, verse 28. The king of Ammon, he's not going to listen to reason. He wants a fight. In verse 29, it says, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed over Gilead and Manasseh, and passed over Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed over unto the children of Ammon. And Jephthah vowed a vow unto the Lord and said, If you shall without fail deliver the children of Ammon into my hands, then it shall be that whatsoever cometh forth of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the children of Ammon, sh shall surely he be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah passed over unto the children of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands. You know what's interesting about the Bible? If we were writing that history, we would have gotten into all the, the way the battle took place, all the people that died, how they died, the weapons that took place. That whole thing is summed up in one verse. He whips them. That all is settled in one small verse. That's the way God tells history. Because the point is, is his sovereignty and his salvation. It's not in the details of the world and their battles. They'd make a movie out of that in Hollywood now. Jephthah's battle. It would last two hours. And here it's in one verse. But it says, verse 33, Jephthah smote them from Arior, even until Mineth, even twenty cities, and unto the plain of the vineyards, with a very great slaughter. And thus the children of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. And Jephthah came to Mizpah, unto his house, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with timbrels and with dances, and she was his only child. Beside her he had neither son nor daughter, only child. And it came to pass when he saw her that he rent his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you are one of them that trouble me, for I have opened my mouth unto the Lord, and I cannot go back. And she said unto him, My father, if thou hast opened thy mouth unto the Lord, do to me according to that which proceeds out of thy mouth. For as much as the Lord has taken vengeance for thee of thine enemies, even of the children of Ammon. And she said unto her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone two months that I may go up and down upon the mountains and bewail my virginity, I and my fellows. And he said, Go. And he sent her away for two months, and she went with her companions and bewailed her virginity upon the mountains. And it came to pass at the end of two months that she returned unto her father, who did with her according to his vow, which he had vowed, and she knew no man, and it was a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in a year. So I'd like to deal with the end of this story, chapter 11. It goes, actually goes on in chapter 12 now, and then I want to go back to the beginning for the main thing I want to say. But I do want to talk about the end here briefly and that is Jephthah's vow that he makes in verses 30 to 31. His vow was, he vowed a vow unto the Lord, verse 30, and said, If you will without fail deliver the children of Ammon into my hands, and it shall be that whatsoever or whosoever comes forth out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the children of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. And verse 39 says, And it came to pass at the end of two months that his daughter returned unto her father, who did with her according to his vow, which he vowed. 
and she knew no man, and it was a custom of Israel. So there's two views on what is meant here, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time breaking down the details of all that, because in a way, it doesn't matter. And I'm saying, you can read commentaries of very godly men, and they disagree, and they both have pros and cons that are legitimate on both sides, okay? One view has her being a perpetual virgin for life. She never marries, and, and there's reasons for that. Like I said, I really don't want to get into that. And in verse 31, where it says, and, it also could be or. That word in the Hebrew could be translated or, where he said, shall surely be the Lord's, or I will offer it up for a burnt offering. And that's, a, that's actually a possible point of view that I wouldn't argue with. It's not worth breaking a church up over whether she was a virgin for life or was sacrificed. Because some would say, well, why is she bewailing her virginity if she's going to die? And that's their reason. But a lot of people make a good case that she was literally offered as a sacrifice. Now, Jephthah, he didn't grow up in the nicest home, in the, in the nicest environment, and I doubt if they were having weekly Bible studies. He was a rather coarse individual. So to say that that would be beyond him, I wouldn't have a problem with that either way. But here's what I think the real point is, is he made a rash vow. He didn't have any reason to make that vow. He didn't need to make that. God would have delivered them either way. Whether he made that vow or not, that vow had nothing to do with God's deliverance. And so here's the point. We need to seriously consider, the Bible teaches us, what we're doing before we make any kind of vow, whether it's to people or to God, that we're going to keep it. God will hold us to that. Psalm 15.4 says that a righteous man will swear to his own hurt and change not. I've seen a lot of people that call themselves Christians, and they tell somebody it could even just be a little thing. But whether it's a little thing, they would do the same thing in a big thing. They promise somebody they'll do something with them. And something as little as another friend calls them up that they like a little better and would rather be around. And this person just is like, oh, I'm not going to be able to make it. Something like that. Well, you made a promise to somebody. And that's what it means to swear to your own hurt. You promise somebody something and all of a sudden it's going to cost you more than you thought or some better proposition comes along. You better do, according to the Bible, what you promised at the beginning. Now, if you can't make it because you physically can't get there or all those kind of reasons, obviously we're not talking about that. But how many times? It happens all the time to everybody in this room. You all know what I'm talking about. Where you make a promise to somebody, you vow somebody you'll do something, and then all of a sudden it's going to cost you a little something. You don't like your new situation now or something better is coming down the road, and you just give somebody the shaft. That's not right. It really isn't. Because for one thing, you're supposed to be inhabited by the spirit of truth, and your yes should be yes, shouldn't it? And our nay should be nay. We tell somebody we're going to do something, we'll do it. Hurt us or not, that's the way it should be. And if you will put something there in Judges and look back in Ecclesiastes, that's when we make promises or vows to men, let alone the Lord. If you'll look in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, Ecclesiastes 5, look what he says here. Beginning in verse 1, Keep thy foot when you go to the house of God, and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they consider not that they do evil. Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven and you are upon earth. Therefore, let thy words be few. For a dream 
comes through the multitude of busyness, and a fool's voice is known by the multitude of words. When you vow a vow unto God, defer not to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou vowed. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. He's saying, before you make some vow to the Lord, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you so much money. You, you prosper my business, and I've, I'm going to promise you I'll give all this to missions. You need to think about what you're saying. Or any kind of vow or promise that you make before the Lord, he's saying, you're better off not to vow it than to vow it to God and not pay it. Is that not what we just read? That's not complicated. That is not rocket science there. And I got caught by that one time, not with the Lord so much, but we're getting back to people. Getting ready to go to the seminar, I had two crisp $100 bills in my wallet, and, and I didn't have a lot of money. $100 was a lot of money for me at the time. But I had some gospel tracks too, and I'm down at Doug's Tires. And I'm sitting, I'd hand tracks out when I'd go in there and try to witness to those guys. There was one guy, I just got in this new track. It was supposedly you couldn't tear it. It was supposed to be impossible to tear, and I trusted the manufacturer. So I'm in there at Doug's Tires, and I'm, this guy's working on my car. So here's a gospel track, and I said, I said, you can't tear that thing in half. It's impossible. He's like, really? I said, yeah. So I said, I'll give you $100 if you can do that. <laughs> really? So he said, can I do anything I want to? And I said, you do whatever you want to. It doesn't matter. <laughs> that was on the warranty, I guess. And uh, that guy's like, really? Okay. So he took that thing, and he's folding it in half. And he had two fingernails. They were like razor blades. They were long and like razor blades. And he took that thing, and I'm watching that thing just tear right in half. And I'm like, oh. well, I mean, by that time, there's like four guys standing around there at Doug's Tires. And he's like, oh, man, you don't have to pay me. And I'm thinking, you know what? I think I just made a rash vow. Because <laughs> like Jephthah, I didn't have to vow. I could have told him five bucks. He didn't care. I'm the one that made the amount. And I thought, you know what? Next time, don't believe what they say on those tracks, number one, <laughs> except the message. But you need to think a little bit harder about you and your big mouth making this rash vow. And so I thought, you know what? My testimony's on the line here with those guys. This is going to hurt a little bit, but we're back to you swear to your own hurt. And I said, no. I said, I told you I'd give you $100, and here's your $100. And he didn't hand it back to me. <laughs> he didn't protest too much. But anyways, life moves on, and the Lord provides and all that. So well, what I want to do, let's get back to Judges 11. Because I want to talk the rest about God's choice of Jephthah. That, that's really what I want to talk about tonight. And look at verses 1 to 3. It says, Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor, and he was the son of a harlot. Gilead begat Jephthah. And Jephthah's wife bare him sons, and his wife's sons grew up. And they thrust out Jephthah and said unto him, You shall not inherit our father's house, for you are the son of a strange woman. And then Jephthah fled from his brethren and dwelt in the land of Tob. And there were gathered vain men to Jephthah and went out with him. So what kind of man was this guy? What does it say there in verse 1? He was a mighty man of valor. And if it had stopped there, all would have been well. But it's the title that is added on to him that really hurts. And what does it say about him? He was the son of a harlot. And because of that, you know what got him in trouble? His brothers cast him out of their house and disinherited him. We read that. Look what it says there in verse 2. Thou shalt not inherit our father's house, for you are the son of a strange woman. And Jephthah had to flee from his brethren and dwell in a 
strange land, the land of Tob. So where did they get that? It says in verse 7, the elders backed up what they did. And Jephthah said unto the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and expel me out of my father's house? He's like, not only my brothers, but the elders were against him and dispelled him out. You have no inheritance with your father. You're the son of a harlot, an illegitimate person. And where'd they get that from? Deuteronomy 23 says this, no one of illegitimate birth shall enter the congregation of the Lord. And that's what they based it on. So we're looking at this man, a mighty man of valor, but he's also an outcast. And in our estimation, just looking at that, the world's estimation, he was a loser. He's up there with all these renegades. Bunch of loser friends. Vain and worthless, it says in verse 3, about the men that he had gathered around him. What we need to see here, and this is a biblical principle, is that God loves to take the outcast, the losers, society's rejects, and make them possessions of his grace. That's what he does. What about the prostitute of Luke 7? Comes in that house where Jesus is, comes up behind him, and she is just showering her love on him. And man, did she get scorned. Just like Jephthah did. Here's what they said about her. Well, this is what the Pharisee says. This man, Jesus, if he was a prophet, he would have known who and what manner of woman this is that touches him, for she is a sinner. But they don't realize. That's, they hadn't read their Bible very well. They should have known Pharisees. They just hadn't picked up on the spirit of the law. Oh, no. That's the kind of people God loves. And how comfortable are we with them, though? Because sometimes people like that, they got an odor about them. You go in the segregation area, man, it's got, it's got kind of a nasty odor about it. And some guys there, they don't brush their teeth very much. And it's just not always a real pleasant experience. But yet, is that not who God has come for, people like that? The ones we see that we look at them and we think, huh, I don't know. Maybe walk on the other side of the supermarket aisle. You know, there's a case in Genesis 38. It's an interesting chapter to read. And it's funny that it's in the Bible. You don't hear it talked about much. But Judah, one of the sons, he marries a Canaanite woman named Shua. And Judah has three sons, one named Er, one named Onan, and one named Shelah. And the oldest one, Er, he marries a woman named Tamar. But it says that Er was wicked. The oldest son was wicked and God slew him. It doesn't say why or what he did, but it says God killed him. Onan, the second one, he says, go into Tamar and raise up seed for thy brother. And that's the case where Onan spilled his seed on the ground. And because of that, because he said, that kid isn't going to be mine. They're going to look at that as that's my older brother's kid, so I'm not giving him one. He said, God looked at that, killed him next. So now old Judah's down to one child, Shelah, the youngest Judah's afraid God's going to do him in too. So he tells Tamar, I'm not sending this guy into you. I want you to just go on away. You go to your dad's house, which is what she does. You get away from him because everybody seems to mess with you. They die. And so we're not going to get into that. So she leaves. But then she hears one time that Judah's come around her territory. So she goes out there and she says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to dress up like a harlot because I know the kind of man he is. And she meets him out on the road and he comes into her. 
And he, she's like, what are you going to give me for my services? He says, I'll give you a young kid, but I don't have it now. I'll send it. She goes, ah, I need a little bit of a pledge from you. So he gives her his signet, a bracelet, and his staff. And she's holding on to all that stuff. And he gets her pregnant. And it's found out. Then word gets around. Old Tamar, your daughter-in-law, she played the whore. And she's pregnant. And he's indignant. Judah, he's like, oh, man. She got a kid being an immoral whore, a prostitute. She needs to be burned. And then all of a sudden it gets exposed to where she finds out, yeah, but who is this signet and all this? This is of the man that came unto me. And he's like, well, you're more righteous than me. But the point I want to make is she had two children. She had twins. Pharaoh and Zerah, and they're illegitimate kids. Another case of that, just like Jephthah. But you know where they made it? You read the genealogy in Matthew 3, and it has both of their names in there because that is who God uses. Put it in the godly line of our Lord Jesus Christ. You read Luke's account, it's got Ferris's name in there. But nonetheless, the ones that we would consider rejects, the illegitimate ones, and maybe somebody in here is illegitimate, and that's a scorn in society, but not with God because God's grace can overcome all that, can it? It really can. Through repentance. That's the way our God is. You know, if you think about it, and I don't know how much you have, but I'll let you, help you right now. If you read Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, these are the great men of faith, the great men and women of faith. And some of the names in there, you've got David, the murderer, the adulterers in there, Rahab, the harlot is mentioned. We make a big deal about faith. Well, what about Rahab? She's put forth as an example in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. Samson, the womanizer. I got him in big kind of, he lost his eyeballs out of that. But yet he's right there in the hall of faith because that is the vessels God uses, not perfect people. Gideon, the coward. You, are you a fearful type person? That's the way I was growing up, afraid of everything. People didn't matter, full of fear. And yet, by the Spirit of God and His grace, He can change a person like that, can He? Amen, He can. And then we have here Jephthah, the illegitimate son of a harlot. Well, let me ask you this. Could Jephthah help his background? So, you know, people will cry and complain they're victims and all that. He was truly a victim. He couldn't help the fact of what his birth and his heritage was in that way, could he? Truly a victim. And there are people that are truly victims. I met two guys in this segregation area where I go into, and it's just you're walking cell to cell to cell, individual cells. It's a little bit back. Not that long ago, though. And one of them, when I came to his cell, I noticed his head had scars all over it, and he was disfigured. His face was disfigured. And I wondered how that happened. I remember looking at him. I didn't ask him. I'm thinking, man, what happened to you? Because it looked kind of grotesque. And I mean, he'd been in a bad fight, I, I thought. I didn't know. So I went and talked to him, though. I went through the gospel with him. And he seemed open, and he was listening. But when I was done, I asked him, I said, is there anything that would keep you from accepting the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, giving your life to the Lord? And he said, yes. Yeah, there's something. He says, I have trouble believing in God. Believing in the Bible. Because he said when he was a little boy, he was constantly beaten. By his parents, both of them, never let up on him. 
And he said he went to Sunday school and prayed to God to please have the beating stop. And he said they never did. So he said they didn't stop until I got big enough to make them stop. And I believe that was why he was in jail, killed one of his parents. So he's figured the only way he was ever going to get help in this world was to help himself. That was his answer. And I'll tell you, I mean, my heart went out to him. It really did. I thought, I never experienced anything like that when I grew up because my mom and dad never abused me. I felt totally safe in my house and secure with them. I'm thinking, the very ones you growing up, I mean, it's easy to judge these guys, but the very ones in his growing up that should have given him security never did, ever. So, I don't know, you know, it could be there's people in here. I mean, I wouldn't think most of the people that have grown up in this church, but it's possible there's someone in here that's got a background like that or worse. Maybe life in your house is not normal, and it's giving you a jaded attitude towards the Lord, a twisted attitude towards the Lord. And so turn to Job 3, because sometimes you might feel like this. Job had a lot coming down on him in those first two chapters. And it says, beginning in verse 1, Job 3, 1, it says, After this, opened Job his mouth, and he cursed his day. And Job spake and said, Let the day perish wherein I was born, and the night in which it was said, There is a man-child conceived. Let that day be darkness, and let not God regard it from above, neither let the light shine upon it. He's like, as bad as this is right now, I just wish I had never been born. That's how much my life has just fallen in on me. Look at verse 11. He said, why died I not from the womb? Why did I not give up the ghost when I came out of the belly? Verse 13, for now should I have lain still and been quiet. I should have slept and then I had been at rest. Verse 16, or as an hidden untimely birth I had not been, as infants which never saw light. And there the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary be at rest. There the prisoners rest together. They hear not the voice of the oppressor. The small and greater there, and the servant is free from his master. Wherefore is light given to him that is in misery, and life unto the bitter in soul, which long for death, but it comes not, and dig for it more than for hid treasures. And so that might be how a young person in here feels with their life. I don't know. I mean, I felt like that several times in my teenage years. I had a bad experience from the time I was 17 till the time I was 21. My life, for me, it was hell. And there are times I thought, why was I born? I wished I hadn't have been born before I came to the Lord. That's the way I really felt. And I told this guy that about Job and his suffering. But I also told him, I said, here's what you need to know, my friend. You can't help where you're at now. That's where you're at. But God delivered Job. Job at one point wished he hadn't been born, but he didn't end up that way. God delivered him and blessed him. And I told him, I said, listen, the Lord Jesus Christ was beaten and suffered worse than we could imagine. Never did anything wrong. I said, you've got to consider that. He was beaten worse than you were. And he did it wise so that we could be set free, didn't he? Amen. And I asked him, I said, don't you think the Lord Jesus Christ knew what it was to be an outcast and rejected and not treated well? 
happens. Here's what we need to remember about the Lord Jesus Christ. So wherever you're at, whatever your feelings are of inadequacy, your life's not good, you're having a lot of struggles with things, maybe you're somebody hooked on pornography, I don't know. But the Lord Jesus Christ was called illegitimate. Do you know that? How could he have been born? They weren't married. Oh, that was a common thing. He was called illegitimate. That he performed powers. Here he is healing people and they're saying, oh no, you're doing that by the power of the devil. How do you think that felt for the Lord to have to hear that and be accused of that? Said he was a friend of sinners and prostitutes, kind of like Jephthah, our friend. And his own family thought he was crazy. So that's why it says that he was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. So no matter how bad it is for you, no matter what you're dealing with emotionally, and I'm saying for young people, it is really a tough time of life. But the Lord Jesus Christ can relate and help you out and help you through that. Because it says in Isaiah 53, 3, he was despised and rejected of men. And he was a man that had feelings like us. To say it didn't hurt. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. So there's a lot of people I meet in prison where their friends hate their guts because they're like, man, you were this evil person, and now you're Mr. Holy. And we're supposed to think you're so great <laughs> because you're acting like Mr. Holy. And sometimes that'll happen to people in here even, right? Maybe people at school, like, who do you think you are? You think you're so holy? And they mistreat you and they reject you. Or maybe you're just born into totally negative circumstances, like that guy I met in segregation. Did his parents beat him, right? You got three strikes against you before you ever started. So do you feel like you're a loser? Rejected? Does Satan tell you you are worthless? And tell me, tell me he doesn't tell that to some people that are in here. That's right where you want to be. You're in a good place. Because the probability of your salvation just skyrocketed. It really did. Because this is what it says in 1 Corinthians 1. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. He's chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and the base things, like Jephthah, the base things of the world, and things which are despised has God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to nothing things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. So God not only saves the rejects, not only saves them, he gives them salvation, he uses them. That's the other thing we want to see with Jephthah here. Let's go back to Judges, if you would, please. He uses them. Beginning in verse 5, chapter 11, verse 5 of Judges. And it was so that when the children of Ammon made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to fetch Jephthah out of the hand of Tob. And they said unto Jephthah, Come and be our captain, that we may fight with the children of Ammon. And Jephthah said unto the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me? You hated me. And expel me out of my father's house. And now you're coming to me when you're in distress. And the elders of Gilead said unto Jephthah, Therefore we turn again to thee now, that thou mayest go with us, 
and fight against the children of Ammon and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And Jephthah said unto the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the children of Ammon and the Lord deliver them before me, shall I be your head? And the elders of Gilead said unto Jephthah, The Lord be witness between us if we do not so according to thy word. So they're coming to him, yeah, we rejected you, but we need you real bad now, and we'll make you our captain. But isn't that what Israel had done? That's why we went through chapter 10. Isn't that exactly what they did to the Lord? We rejected you for other gods, but man, we have been distressed now for 18 years, and we need you. It's a parallel. We're seeing acted out what Israel did to the Lord. They hated him and served other gods, and when they were oppressed, they called for him and helped with help, said they would serve him. And what did God do when they said that we need you to help us? He raised up someone else, didn't he? That's the way our God is. Someone they rejected to be their savior. And what these men had to do, they sent him away. They had to eat some humble pie, didn't they? To ask him to come back. They really did. Like, you told me to leave. You hated me. Tell me to get out of here. Now you're asking me to come back and help you? Well, they made him eat some humble pie. And so at first, that's what we read in verse 6. They just want to make him the captain, a temporary captain. And he's like, you're not going to get away with that. I'm not just going to be your captain. You're going to make me your head, aren't you? And they said, yeah, we promised that you could be our captain and our head. <laughs> We're going to put you in your place where you need to be. And so God uses him, doesn't he? The one they rejected is the one God used. The one they despised because of his background is the one God used. And I want to say, so some of you weren't here Sunday, right in the second row, my buddy Jack Schaefer was here. I didn't want to offend him by saying, yeah, I knew him through prison, but that's how I knew Jack Schaefer, through prison. I knew Jack there for six years, I guess, in prison or four or five years, whatever, and I've known him ever since he's been out. He's been out for three and a half years. And I've never known Jack to be anything other than a true Christian because, believe me, I've seen the ones that they can talk, all this religious talk, and I wouldn't trust them. I've had one hand on my wallet and shake their hand with the other one, <laughs> literally. Jack's never been like that. And when you're a Christian, you can tell when someone else is a Christian. And I just found this out. We went out to eat with him and his wife. He was the notorious Jack Schaefer. He was known in every prison in the state of Kentucky. And Jack told me, and I'm, I'm like, kind of, I said, man, Jack, I, I mean, I knew you had a problem, but I didn't know you were this bad. And he told me, he goes, well, you know, you got your neighbors that you might, that live next to you that you might hate, but you don't do anything about it. He said, I did something about it. I acted on my hatred. That's how I was. And I said, you know what? It's hard for me knowing you, and his countenance was always clean. He always would just just a great God, just a great Christian. I said, I cannot imagine you being that way. He's like, I was that way. He really was. And what I want to say, so I'm saying God can use someone like that. You know what he went to jail for? And I asked him, I got his permission to say this, and he'd say it himself. What he had done is he was an alcoholic, and a mean alcoholic, and he got drunk one night and had a hen-on wreck and killed five people, killed a whole family, and he didn't get a scratch. And they hated his guts in that town. And so his sister asked him, they asked him to come back to that town, and they had a church meeting. They wanted him to share his testimony. And so Jack said he was sharing his testimony. I'm kind of, I could say a lot more, but this is what I'll say. And there was an EMS worker. It was the guy It was standing on the side. Jack didn't know it. 
But this is the guy standing there listening to him give his testimony and the change God had wrought in his life. The guy that had pulled the bodies out of the car was there watching him. And Jack said, when he got done with his testimony, that guy said, Jack Schaefer. And Jack's like, man, he didn't know what was coming next. And he told him, he said, I'm going to tell you what. He said, I hated you after you killed those people, after what you did. He said, but after you're hearing your testimony tonight, he says, I know that God is real and has changed you and done a remarkable work in your life. And I praise God for it. Now, that's what God can do. Take somebody like that that, I mean, man, despised and rejected and a terrible background, notorious Jack Schaefer. And God uses him. And he will talk about the Lord. He's not some forced thing. He's not got religious spirits. And I've seen a ton of those. It's for real in his heart. I just think that's just a blessing. It really is. To me, it's just a real blessing. And I'll just say, stay faithful. <laughs> and God will give you the opportunities to bless to be a blessing where your name has been a curse. <laughs> I could say something else, but I won't. Because it happened to Jephthah, didn't it? Despised and rejected, and yet God used him. It happened to my friend Jack Schaefer. It happened to the Lord Jesus Christ, most of all, didn't it? So Peter, he tells those Jews, you think about on the day of Pentecost, all these Jews are gathered there. And what does Peter tell them? He says, you, by your wicked hands, have slain the king of glory. You've rejected him and killed him and spit on him, just like Jephthah was rejected. And he said, yet God has made this same Jesus both Lord and Christ. Those people, what happened? By the Spirit of God, it said they were convicted in their hearts, slain. God slew them. And what they had to do then, the very ones that had cried out for his death, no, we'd rather have a prisoner release, Barabbas, than the Lord Jesus Christ. Even though Pilate says he's never done anything wrong. They had to eat humble pie, didn't they? Like all of us. And bow the knee to this Lord that they despised and crucified and rejected. And now they're saying, no, we'll be baptized because he is the one that will give us life. <laughs> that's what happened. And so that's all of us here, isn't it? Despite no one grew up a Christian. If you did, you need to get your theology straightened out. All of us, the best of you in here, I don't care if you grew up in a Christian home, you despised the Lord Jesus Christ and rejected him until one day his spirit convicted you and brought life into your heart. That's the way we did. If you read this, it's amazing to me. He didn't bear any grudges, did he, against these people? He helped them out, didn't he? Yeah, he says, I'll fight with you. Make me your captain, I'll fight with you. And he did. He could have just told them all to get lost. I'm up here, I'm having a party up in Tob. No one's messing with me up here. But he didn't. And that's just like the Lord Jesus Christ. You think about it. Oh, man, I was the worst sinner of all. Like Brother Hamilton used to say, we all could say that, right? I mean, I said things about the Lord and Christians. It's ridiculous. And yet, does the Lord hold any of that against us? That we rejected him, how we treated him before we came to him? No, he doesn't at all. And listen, we need to remember that too, though, that when we shouldn't be bearing grudges against anybody that hurts us now or in the past, shows us no respect. Well, they didn't show it to Jephthah, and they didn't show it to the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet they didn't hold any grudges, and that's something we could learn. Those people, though, you'll find a lot of times the ones that do you wrong and have no respect for you and reject you, 
for your Christianity and don't treat you right, they will be the ones that you will be the heart and hands of Jesus to. They'll be the ones coming to you for help if you keep your attitude right and pray for them. You know, Smith Wigglesworth, many of you know this, his neighbors wanted absolutely nothing to do with him. They left him alone. He was the loneliest man in England, I think, because all he would do if they came by is he wouldn't even let a newspaper in his house. You would read the Bible and talk about the Lord. And so they're like, we don't want nothing to do with that guy until they got sick or their children got sick. And then they're knocking on Smith's door because they knew that God answered his prayer and would heal them. <laughs> That's a great example of that. So listen, Jephthah, to sum it up, he was despised and rejected and yet used by God to help the very ones who had rejected him. And he's just a flawed example because he had issues. He did. All the judges did. All the people of the Bible. David, the man after God's own heart, Moses. All of them are flawed examples, yet their lives in some way will point to the one who is perfect, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one that we follow, the one whose spirit's in us, the one whom we're to be more like each day. Amen. I would just say, if you're in here and you've been despised and rejected, or you feel like you're low down on a totem pole, be encouraged. You're in great company. We just talked about it. Amen? I shared this at Jamie's funeral, but I want to share it again because this is what I feel. This is how God operates. When it's all been said and done, is the way it is. When it's all been said and done, there is just one thing that matters. Did I do my best to live for truth? Did I live my life for you? And he goes on to say, Lord, your mercy is so great that you look beyond our weakness and find purest gold in miry clay, turning sinners into saints. And as a result, I will always sing your praise here on earth and ever after. For you've shown me heaven's my true home when it's all been said and done. That's our God. Amen. 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 All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, for your word and the truth and how we can see your attributes, Lord, your mercy, your sovereignty, and your great love, and how you love to take those that are despised and rejected, the outcast of society, Lord, and put your spirit on them and make a change, and they are transformed people. All of us here are that, Lord, transformed people, and for the ones that aren't, I just ask that you'll put it in their heart tonight, Lord, to turn to you to cry out to you to have mercy on them and to give them your salvation. Just ask that you'll do that. And I just thank you for being here with us tonight and speaking to all of us. And we do that in Jesus' name. Amen.